Hey everyone, welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be engaging in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current island residents to find out about what brought them to this awesome little island we live on, and also to find out some more stories that brought them to this point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Victor Zorman. Now, a lot of you might recognize Victor from being the smiley guy in the window at the insurance office and being a real pleasure to deal with, if you ask me. But today, we're going to find out more about Victor. We're going to hear Victor's thoughts about being on Pender, about growing up, and about his family. Now, I just finished the edit on this, and I was trying to figure out what am I going to say about the introduction, and what I truly want to say is... It was a real pleasure to listen back to the interview, and I had a great time, and it was really nice to hear Victor's thoughts, and I hope you enjoy it too. Here's my interview with Victor Zorman. Welcome, Victor. Wow. No, it's great. It's uh, an interesting concept. Um, When you contacted me, I thought it'd be a lot of fun. The traditional first question we're going to be starting off the show with is, what brought you to Pender Island? Uh, basically, uh, born and raised in Vancouver, spent my entire life on the mainland. Um, and as the years progressed and I moved out and then there was the townhouse and there was a house constantly on the mainland and got to a point, and I'm kind of summing this up quite quickly and we can talk about it a little bit more later, but came to a point where enough of the mainland. Uh, the last job I had, basically, my commute was an hour and a half there, an hour and a half back. When an opportunity came up that we could move or should move, we decided to move to Pender. Um, one of the things that brought us here was a friend of mine, David Fox, which I'm sure a lot of people will know. Uh, David Fox and Diane Kremer, Benevolent Beast Studio. Um, he had been on island for quite some time, so he knew Pender well. And we'd been you know, my wife at the time uh, and I would, had been visiting them on a regular basis. So we had a feel for Pender. Um, we liked the quietness of it. We liked the beauty of it. Um, we didn't really get to know the people simply because we were, quote unquote, the tourists that at this point now we all curse. Um, so I was one of them. I think we all were one of them at one point. Um, and so basically, that's how we basically fell in love with the island. So the opportunity came up. We made the move packed up the bags and the three dogs and moved to Beverly sort of thing. Okay. And what year was this in that you moved Uh, to Pender? This would have been, so I've probably been here coming on 13 years now, I think. Yeah. 13 years. Yeah. Okay. And then you came over with three dogs as well. We did. We did. I had a beagle by the name of Watson. I had a a shepherd cross uh, by the name of Sadie and a lab, a Rottweiler cross, which was absolutely insane by the name of Madeline. So we moved all three of them over. We um, The house we bought was on South Pender, so we got a little bit of property, which was nice. And it was lovely. We could just kind of let them wander around. At first, I was a little worried about the deer, but no. Not, not, all three of them just looked at them and said, yeah, big dogs. And they didn't really care, so it was kind of nice. But it was interesting. The last move, you think you're ready to move, and then you realize, oh, my God, we've got a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. I mean, we got we purged as best we could. Two moving trucks over here, and the last move, the CRV we had, which is a great car, holds a lot, but we had it stuffed so full. The dogs were, we weren't sure how they were going to travel on the ferry, but they were so crammed in on the pillows and blankets and all that, they couldn't move. So, yeah, it was about the quietest ride with the dogs we've ever had. It was awesome. (laughs) 
Okay, so you moved to South Pender Island, and how did how did you find that particular property? Well, we had a, basically it was a a, a price um, that we you know that we could play around with, um, and so I had a list and a realtor at the time, Anna, which uh, Anna Katsioris was uh, she was working uh, with us, and she was great. She showed us basically everything. There was one house though that uh, I added to the list. She told me because you don't need to see that one. I went no 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 because I mean, now I've got my lower mainland head on and I went no it's on my price range I want to see it and she went okay and we went and we walked in and the floor was this amazing wave constantly throughout the house and I looked at Anna and she said yeah no there's no real foundation here so at that point I realized there are some places on Pender that were built a while ago pre-code that yeah there's probably you shouldn't go see Strange enough, the house we did buy, the day we actually finalized our sale, this was the house in Maple Ridge, um, the house that we're in now, or the house that I'm in now, um, was listed. So we added it quickly to the list. Um, and Miriam at the time, she said, well, you know, if there's anything there you like, you, you just buy it. And I'm like, eh, no, no, no. That's a lot of weight. Um, because I remember my dad, he bought a house and my mom hated it for 30 years. <laughs> So I took my friend Dave Fox, we went, and uh, the minute we drove down, it was the last house we looked at, and the minute we drove down the drive, we do it, and I thought this would be perfect. It was the right size, it was, it was, a, it was, it was perfect. Um, so I had a couple of houses, so Miriam came over on the next ferry, and we went and took a look, and yeah, she agreed, so that was the house. We put an offer, and it was done within, I think, two weeks. We just knew. Okay, so just to roll it back a little bit here, you said that you were living in Maple Ridge before you came over mm-hmm. to, uh, what What were you doing in Maple Ridge? Yeah, basically, Maple Ridge, we wound up in Maple Ridge. So when we got married, the first place was in uh, the West End, which was great. Two years, the rate, uh, rent went up, so we wound up in Burnaby up by Metrotown Mall. That went up, and we wound up in, in New Westminster, which we love New Westminster, great little apartment. And we realized the rent was going to go up at some point. So we thought, okay, I've got a decent job. You've got a good job. Let's see what we can do. And so we pooled our resources. We proved for a mortgage and we got our first townhouse in Coquitlam, which was just off of the Coquitlam Mall right next to Coquitlam River. It was great. And so that's where our house was. And we got our first dog, a little beagle. Beagles are not dogs you should ever get for first-time owners. Wow, there are stubborn beasts, but loving and food focused, God, I could tell you hours just stories on him. Anyway, named him Watson, lovely dog. And then we, the job I had at the time, I got a raise and all of a sudden we we're making quite a bit of money and we we're planning to have a kid. And so I thought, okay, um, we could stay here, but here's an opportunity. Let's see where we can step up. And so everything on the Fraser River towards the Vancouver side was a bit pricey. So we just stepped over and went over to Maple Ridge and found a house. And it was at a good price, cul-de-sac, big yard, two cherry trees, big willow tree, lovely place. It did have bamboo when they didn't contain the bamboo. So that was a bit of an experience, realizing that bamboo comes up in these horrible, horrid spikes all over the yard. So you running around barefoot, not a good, not definitely not a good thing. Anyway, However, my beagle liked to eat bamboo, so he did a pretty good job there. So there, anyway, part panda, perhaps, I don't know. Anyway, so we moved in there, and uh, we were there for probably 10 years um, when things started to go a little bit, not sideways, but uh, the job I had, they were bought out, and uh, I I was no longer needed. And so I went through a few things like that. It was like I had uh, several jobs that every two years, and somebody either got bought out or I just hated it. The last job I worked at uh, went bankrupt, and at the time, that was the one that was in Richmond, so that was basically an hour-and-a-half commute on a good day. And I don't mind being on the road. Uh, most of the jobs I had, I was a road rep, So I, but at some point, you're like, I, I can't do it anymore. And so we had the opportunity 
at that point, basically, we had we made the decision at that point, uh, and at that point as well, uh, we weren't going to be able to have children. That was a, that was a whole thing, which we can talk about later. I don't mind, um, but just to get to the point of us getting here, so we decided to sell the house there, and we thought, well, where are we going to go? And we thought right away, Pender Island just seemed to be the proper place. Um, we kind of kicked around maybe like Hornby or, or Galliano, but Pender was the right size and it was the right population and it was close to, to Victoria so that you could just zip over there if you needed to. It was it was the right spot um, and still is, in my opinion. It's it's uh, I think it's a perfect place for a lot of people who want to get away from the mainland or big cities and yet still have access to it without all the negative aspects of it. So that's what basically brought us here. Okay. Well, this is something that I want to try to find a common thread with this podcast is people's decision to come to a small island, but also people's decision to come to Pender in particular. So you knew people who lived on the island that mm-hmm. obviously played a role we in did. deciding to come here, but also was the uh, proximity to Victoria, you said? It was It was a plus. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, it was. it's far enough away that it's not like you're not constantly running over there. I mean, I know some people do. Um, for a variety of reasons, but you don't have to. There's enough here to keep you here if you want to. Um, and yet, you know, there's things over there that if you do want to go to the theater, if you do want to, well, we've got great theater here, but if you want to see a movie or whatever, whatever, you know, kind of catches your eye, you've got access to it, which is great. It's isolated, but not isolated. I mean, I think that's the great thing about Pender. It's as isolated as you want it to be. Um, I know people that during the spring and summer, they don't go out. They, they love it. They don't want to interact with people. They don't need to interact with people. And they kind of emerge in fall and winter, and there you go, which is which is also great. Um, temperate as well. I mean, this island is amazing when it comes to winter. I mean, this, like this last winter we had was just, it's temperate. Um, we get a lot of snow? No. Do we get a lot of rain? Yes, but that's okay. Um, and the amount of sun we get and just, I don't know, the wind, the trees, it was just, it's, it's a beautiful environment. Absolutely gorgeous. Do you see yourself living off of Pender Island anytime in the future? No. Okay, so this is this is it for you. Yeah. No, I've already picked my. my I've got my spot where, where my ashes will be will be strewn 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 strewn. Okay. Flung flung <laughs> scattered. Yeah. De- depends depends how how that's going to work. I don't know, but what? So you moved to Pender Island, and how was the first year for you living on Pender? First year was amazing. It was interesting. Uh, we got here in August, so it was August and September and October, beautiful weather, and then November hit. And that was the year of the ice storm. And for six days, there was no power. So all of a sudden, I'm there with three dogs. Uh, Miriam, at the time, she was working off-island, so she was here on the weekends. But for that week, I was on my own with a wood stove. And boy, did I learn how that wood stoves are amazing. And they're wonderful. And I cooked on it, and I sat by it. It was incredible. And by the end of it, though, I mean, the water's not running, so you're not having any showers or anything except the occasional, like, hot water bath. But my dogs, I I realized that weren't sitting too close to me anymore, and I think I was getting a little on the smelly side. But it was great. Um, The quietness of no power was amazing. And you spent your days getting things done, making sure you had enough wood for the evening, making sure the wood stove was going. Um, Always had water on the wood stove so that there was warm water. The evening would kick in, and then all of a sudden you get your headlamp on, and you're surrounded by candles, and you're reading. And I found myself going to bed at like 7 and waking up super early at 5. You start 
reliving a, an older rhythm um, back when possibly we were more of a tribal nation that, yeah, when the sun went down, you went to sleep and you woke up when the sun came up. And that's kind of what you did. So for one week, it was amazing. That said, when hydro arrived, yeah, no, I jumped in the shower the first thing I did. And the water wasn't even warm yet. I remember I got a call from hydro and I thanked him. I said, yeah, I've already had my shower. And he said, but the power has just been turned on. I went, I know, I don't care. It was cold, but it was a shower. So it was pretty exciting. You know, that's interesting. I think that a lot of people secretly or not secretly really love the power outages because it does give you an opportunity to just enjoy life in a little bit of a different way. Totally. Yeah, candlelight's an amazing thing to experience. I have a sister in Port Moody, and it was a few years ago they had a power outage, and she phoned me up, and she said, so what do you do? And I said, do you have Scrabble? You know, I mean, you, you get a board game, you, you just sit and talk, you stare at the fire, you know, it's, it's amazing. You just start, your brain starts disengaging with life, like with the everyday necessities that you need to do. And you can just kind of put yourself in this vegetative, comfortable, warm nothingness, which is, I, I like, it's a meditative way. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I feel the same way as well too. It's really an enjoyable experience, but equally uh, enjoyable, like you said, is when the power comes back on. Oh my god, then it's Christmas! <laughs> All of a sudden, it's okay. Computers are being turned on, and the lights come on, and then generally, when the power goes out, you've completely forgotten exactly what lights you've had on. So then, you know, you're lying in bed, and the power comes on. They're like, oh yeah, right. All these lights are forgot about these things. So you wander around turning everything off again. Makes you wonder about the choices we make when we have access to power and uh, why we make those choices. I wonder. I ask myself that. Oh, totally. No, totally. I mean, yeah, you do. I mean, it, does this light need to be on? I feel like my father just following me around as a child, turning things off that don't need to be on at that time because power costs. And he was more aware of it. I'm more aware of it now. But uh, the power outage, is, that's, that's a big learning curve. And I think it's better now than it was. Uh, much better now than it was. And I think that does tend to send a lot of people off island when they realize that, what do you mean there's no power? And a lot of people get generators. I mean, I don't have a generator. I don't I don't really feel the need for one. So either you get a generator or you just, yeah, within a year. I find that often working at the insurance office. Uh, I do talk to a lot of people and it's generally, if you can make it past year three, you're going to become a penderling, penderite. I'm not sure exactly what we call ourselves. But it's that time period, you'll start to feel, is this the place for me, yes or no? And it's interesting. And it's usually, it's usually one will want to leave and the other one will want to stay. With partners, you mean? Yeah, which is also interesting. It's like, I find it interesting that this was a joint decision. And I'm thinking, well, I guess it wasn't necessarily that much of a joint decision. Or maybe somebody just wasn't realizing just exactly what it would entail. I mean, I don't know. It's rare when both say, yeah, this isn't for us. It's like, no, it's not for them. And so I'm committed to this person. Off I go. Or Pender's not as important to me as this, you know, that kind of a thing. So I I find that interesting. But anyway, for us, um, yeah, no, Pender was definitely the the place that we wanted to be. And I still am um, um, for for reasons I won't go into. But Miriam isn't. But that's, that's a whole more personal thing, which... Nobody need know, though I'm pretty sure everybody on this island would love to know, because gossip does have a certain cash value, shall we say. Cash value? Well, it does. You know, I tell you something, you tell me something, you know, there's a, there's a trade involved when it comes to gossip. Mm. Really? There's a trade involved? Well, I think there is. I think there is. People like to 
the people love to gossip on this island. Um, a lot of people do. Not, a, I mean, not everybody, and not people necessarily partake of it. But I think it's when you have a small community, you do tend to get gossipy. I mean, I don't remember in high school. Yeah, I mean, there was always things flying around, you know. And in a way, it's a shame because um, gossip tends to get twisted a little bit, and not necessarily everyone puts their own little flavor on it. Um, but anyway, I think it's an interesting thing, gossip, because. I know that when I partake in gossiping about things is that it's like eating sugar. It, uh, it doesn't really make me feel good at the core, but it satisfies some, some need or some desire or just something that really I know is not very healthy for me. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant experience to relearn over and over again, it feels like that this this really is not serving me. No, it's a hit. Uh, basically, you get a buzz, um, and it's a charge. And it's nice to have that charge. If I know something that nobody else does and I can share it, wow, that's a hit. Or if I can find out something before anybody else does, it's a hit kind of a thing. But those hits are very, very, um, they're quick. They're not nourishing. Um, you're not knowing the whole story. You're not knowing the person from where that comes from. Um, and it, after a while, it, it, maybe poisonous is not quite the right term, but there's no nourishment there at all. You're better off getting to know the person. If you're that fascinated by this person that this gossip is amazing, well, no, go find out more about the person. I mean, obviously the person must be amazing. So deal with it that way, you know, as opposed to sharing bits and pieces. It's kind of like trading cards. You know, I got two Bobby Wars who we give me the Gretzky. You know, it's like, well, no, no. But anyway, a whole different thing. Yeah. You know, I, I spent a long period of time in my life uh, living in isolation with a job I did. And mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time reflecting on my own life and going through my own stories. And it was a really helpful experience to go through stories that I didn't really want to face. Yeah. And to just uh, look at them at a very, look at them in a pretty critical eye mm-hmm. and no longer feel embarrassed about them. And it was interesting. I found that after I did that, the more acceptance I had for my own stories and my mm-hmm. own past, mm-hmm. the more acceptance I had for other people. Mm-hmm. And and it was interesting because I didn't really learn that lesson until that point that it doesn't start with finding more acceptance with other people and then finding more acceptance with yourself. You have to find that acceptance with, with yourself. yourself. Yeah. If, if you're not comfortable with who you are, people can't be comfortable with you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I mean, you can be as uh, uh, you can put on the whatever coat you want, um, kind of a thing, um, or wear a mask, shall we say? But you have to be at the core. You have to be confident and comfortable with who you are. I have trouble um, often with who you know who I am or who I who I should be, a kind of a thing. And maybe it's my upbringing. I don't know. And I do tend to put on I, in the past anyway. I put on masks. Um, I'm the sales guy. Um, I do this, I do this, I do that. So that's kind of what you do. But I mean, on Pender, that's one of the few things that I found. I, I actually, I can be myself. Um, I'm not necessarily regulated. I mean, not people see me as the insurance guy. I know, but they know there's more to it than that. Um, they also see me at the true value. They see me wandering down on Gallon Point. I mean, so yeah, there's, there's more to it than that. When I lived in Maple Ridge, basically I was known as, yeah, that's the guy who's got three dogs, you know. So whenever I'd go for a walk, it's like you'd hear the phrase, ah, who's walking who? Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, when, you know, you're like, yeah, so why is it always you that have to say this one line? It's like, it's all you know. But and it, that's what happens. So you do tend, people, I think, have to label people. It's easier. This is the guy that does this. Um, this is the guy that has the three dogs. This is the guy who drives this type of car. 
it's simple and it's ineffective because you don't really get to know who the person is. Um, but it's a way I think people tend to, I, I think humans tend to, they need to categorize. They need to put people in certain places. Um, and it's just for their own, their own benefit. Um, this person hangs with that crowd. Okay, so that's that group. And this person does this with that group. And it's just, I mean, I think one of the first things that uh, Adam did when he was uh, created, um, he went through the Garden of Eden and named things. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what we do. We name things. And I don't like the names that people will put on me necessarily, which is why the more genuine I am, the more they'll realize that that name that they've just given me doesn't necessarily fit that I am just who I am. Mm-hmm. Just somebody who's trying to be helpful and has got kind of a strange sense of humor sometimes. Well, it's true. You do have a strange sense of humor, and that's what I like about you. That's why we get along. <laughs> but let's get into that a little bit more about, uh, because uh, this is something I'm attempting to accomplish with this podcast, is to give people a more rounded view of mm. people on this island. So let's get into that with you. What are you passionate about, Victor? Mm. What, uh, what, is your, what is your passion right now? Passion right now, well passion right now is just basically moving on with my life that's one big thing but generally i mean reading and writing um i'm I'm a nerd i'm huge nerd i love i love comics um seeing all these comic book characters that i grew up with like all the heroes coming onto the screen for the most part it's like oh my god this is so fantastic and like no he's wearing the wrong uniform that's wrong so it's a combination of things i love playing games board games card games i was introduced to a new game this this last past christmas with my family we've always played games it's called um flaming kittens which i thought was interesting I know it was bizarre, but it was a lot of fun and no kitten. I, I, I should preface no kittens were ever harmed in any of this playing of this game, but it was a lot of fun. My family has always been huge with games. Um, uh, growing up, we weren't poor, but we weren't super rich. So we tended to play a lot. Um, there wasn't a lot of TVs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so we spent a lot of time. I had two sisters and two brothers, or I have two sisters and two brothers and an entire community that in a way Pender reminds me of that the rule was a drink spring, summer and fall that you're home before the lights come on. And that was it. There was never any questions. All the adults in the neighborhood basically had the right to discipline you should you misbehave. And yeah, no dad would back them up. He'd never back you up, especially if he found out that you were being an idiot. I remember once my dad was in the garden and uh, working. My family had a garden. My parents are both farmers. We we were the only family who grew corn in the backyard, which always embarrassed me for some odd reason, until the corn was ready to eat, and that was lovely. But I remember he watched, and there was myself and my two brothers. We were close to um, Central Park up in Burnaby. And I had a machete. My one younger brother had this rope coiled around his body, and my other brother had a couple of planks. And we're heading out the back gate, and my dad said to me, he said, so where are you going? I said, Central Park. He goes, okay. At no point did he ask why we had a machete, planks, and, and rope. That was okay. He trusted us. He knew, you know, he knew that we would be responsible for whatever, whatever we got ourselves into. And it was that kind of environment. And I see that here when I drive by the school and the kids are running around and, you know, you see the kids wandering through driftwood or you encounter them on the forest and they're fine and they're happy. And it's just, it's amazing. I mean, in the city, they're so helicoptered. It's, it's, it's like, you know, they're, they're driven everywhere. Nobody walks anywhere. I find that sad. So it's just kind of refreshing to see that here on the island that they actually let kids be kids. You know, let them figure things out. Let them eat dirt. They won't get sick. (laughs) It's okay. Let them eat dirt. (laughs) 
That's funny. Well, just just to get into uh, something that I know that I spend a lot of time doing is uh, working on writing. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to uh, hear you speak to that for a little bit and what that means to you and your life right yeah. now. Writing is right now, it's a little bit of a backseat, a little bit more of a backseat than I'd like it to be. Things are kind of kicking in, but I'm going to get back to it. Um, the Speakeasy is fantastic. Leslie does a great job, and the people that come are wonderful. I'm, I've enjoyed it. I go to it as often as I can, and I try to read as you know, I try to read my work as often as I can. And, and for people who don't know, the Speakeasy is a monthly event that now takes place at uh, Hope Bay. Yeah, uh, the first Sunday now of every month at Hope Bay. Yeah, it's at seven fifteen um, by donation, and basically you go and people read the most amazing stories. I think quite often you'll be surprised as to who gets up to read. Um, they talk about Pender's past. They talk about what brought them there. They, they talk about their own experiences. Um, there's always a, a couple of words that uh, is kind of a guide, but people use the words. People don't use the words to write their stories, poems, short stories, what have you. And it's interesting. For me, it's a great creative process. Writing for me, I've been working on some, some books, um, some short stories, on and off. And what tended to happen in the past? Life tends to get in the way. And I think what it is, is I just wasn't passionate enough about my writing or not encouraged enough with my writing that I would tend to default on living, trying to make a living, trying to pay for the house. When we lived in Maple Ridge, by the time I got home and had dinner, it was now nine. So you're like, yeah, okay, walk the dogs and go to bed. So that was basically it, which is another reason I became uh, moved to the island so I could focus a little bit more on my writing, which I did for a while. Um, I did finish one book for, it's kind of like what they call a tween market, I suppose. But I don't, when I write, I don't aim for a market. I write whatever's in me. So that kind of comes out and that's the story. So I do go to the uh, Writers Festival, uh, Writers um, Conference that they have every October in Surrey, which is fantastic. It was it was really interesting when I sat down there for the first time. I, I felt as if I had found my tribe. That all these people have various jobs, completely different than mine. But at the end of the day, we receive a great deal of gratification sitting down in a quiet little corner, pen and paper on a laptop, stringing words together. And that's the only thing we have in common. But it's an important thing. So it was interesting to find these people. I went again last year, and I'll go again next year. And it's just a way to connect. Yeah, I think that's really huge to be able to find people who share the same interests as you Mm. do and to be able to gather in a space together Mm -hmm. and share your own experiences. And just it's a really great feeling to be in a a large group of people who think the same way that you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, not necessarily even think the same way, but they have the same passion that they want to write something down. And their passion is a romance. This passion is more science fiction. And it's all fine. But at the end of the day, it's all stories. I mean, we're all living our own story, which is, I mean, probably if we were all to write down our own story, I think we'd all have an an amazing book, really. I mean, nobody leads a, a boring life. It just doesn't exist. I've never met anyone who does. No, not at all. Well, getting back into your story a little bit here, you mentioned that your parents were both farmers. Mm. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about uh, your parents. Uh, Mom, uh, she was in, actually, she was born and raised in Poland. She's German. She was part of the Sudetenland. So after World War I, penalty was basically, uh, Germany had to give a big chunk of land to Poland. So that's where she was. So she was always German. She was never you know, a, a Polish citizen. So World War II hits, and now all of a sudden they have to leave. So she wound up basically moving to Hamburg, and then from Hamburg she wound up in Chilliwack, a small little community called Yarrow, and then eventually she made her way to Vancouver. My father, he is from Slovenia. 
still Yugoslavia at the time. So he left home at 16. If he hadn't have left home, he basically would have been conscripted to the German army. So it was either do that or leave. And so he did. Um, and he basically fought his way through the towards the end of World War II as best as he could with a group of people. I believe it was the Chechniks or anyway, there was there was a bunch of factions. And I once asked him as a kid, you say, you know, dad, you know, you're in the war. Did you ever kill anybody? And his answer to me was basically he didn't know. And I said, well, how do you not how, how do you not know this? And he said, well, every time I fired my rifle, I had my eyes closed. And then at the time, I thought, well, that's just silly. I mean, I've seen movies. I mean, no, you don't just do that. But then you think about it. He was 16. I remember when I was 16. I'm going to go do what now? No, God. So, yeah, 16 years old, leaving home. He didn't go back home for 30 years. Wow, 30 years he didn't go back home. Well, he couldn't because he was afraid um, at the time um, if he went back, he was afraid he wouldn't be able to leave again. It was Yugoslavia, and it was the whole, like, the Russians, and so he wasn't sure that he they'd let him go back out. So that was one of the reasons. But you wound up in, he was in Italy um, in a refugee camp, and then went to England, and then he made his way over to, he wanted to go to Canada, and when he went to the, to the person to basically sign up for the kind of thing, and he said, well, I want to go to Toronto. And the guy said, well, you know, Vancouver, you know, that's better. My dad has no idea why he said that, but he went, yeah, okay. So now he's in Canada, and he's spending four days on a train to get to this Vancouver place. Though he's got pictures, black and white pictures, of when he hit the Rockies, and that's pretty impressive. He was like, oh, okay, they have Alps here, evidently. <laughs> so so the two of them, eventually they met. They were met dancing at the Alpen Club. Sorry, the Alpen Club? Alpen Club. What is the Alpen Club? It's a, a German get-together place. So basically you eat uh, you know, wonderful food, and then you, you dance polkas. You know, the kids, we'd get dragged a few times and, you know, my mom would force us to dance and, and it was always embarrassing and I don't know what I'm doing and I'm dancing with my mom and oh my God. And then, you know, she'd let us go and then I'd, I'd sit and I'd watch my mom and dad dance and they moved and they were, they were connected and they were in sync and it was wonderful. And I think that's pretty much the way they lived their lives. Um, both had their strengths and they defaulted to each other. They raised a good family. I, I loved watching them dance. But I just remember just sitting there, first off, relieved that I didn't have to do that anymore because it was embarrassing. But I enjoyed watching because mom and dad, they just loved to be able to. And I guess for them, it was a way that they weren't parents for a little while. They could just be in love again. That was kind of cool. That's really beautiful. Hmm. That's a really great image. Yeah. It's amazing seeing parents dancing together and seeing the physical embodiment of their their partnership. Mm-hmm. Because you knew they were they were close. Over the years, I realized Mom had more sway than than I realized she did. Um, dad was being he had the he had the loud voice, so you tended to defer to Dad quite a bit. He was more of the uh, the controller, the punisher, that kind of thing. But when I think about it, I think Mom pushed. Um, she was the voice in the background more so. That basically, I think, kind of shaped our family much much more so than I gave her, I ever gave her credit for. And that kind of came to me as uh, my mom passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and so when the family gathered to pay respects, it was just like we're sharing stories. And I was like, yeah, no, yeah, mom, yeah. You remember the whisperings when dad came home from, he worked in a sawmill. He'd come home from the afternoon shift and he'd clump upstairs and he'd crawl into bed. And there'd always be murmurings. And that's when the discussions were happening as to who was doing what to whom and when and and, and the plans and that kind of a thing. What was your mom's name? My mom, Erica. Erica. Uh, my mom's name, yeah, Erica. My father's name was Martin. That was a big thing, too. Uh, my mom converted to Catholicism. She was a Mennonite. That was a big thing. 
Yeah. So obviously she, yeah, she she fell in love with my dad. Otherwise, that would have been a big thing. She was a little bit set aside from her side of the family because my mom's side of the family pretty much all made it here. Uh, My dad, he had lots of friends from Slovenia that he connected with. They would sit and drink schnapps and smoke. Everybody smoked then. It was think about it now, like nobody I know smokes. But back then, you'd walk in these rooms and there would be this heavy cloud. This is a Catholic part of my job when I was in my. 13, 14 years old, I had to go help with the uh, with the bingo night. Absolutely hated it. I went with my dad to help. Everybody smoked like chimneys, and there was just this powder, this heavy cloud hanging over your head. And, oh, everybody was just, oh, the ladies were just so mean. If you didn't get the card to them in time, boy, oh, boy. I was like, Dad, why are we doing this? Made a lot of money for the church, but, oh, I hated it. Mm. Four to five doctors recommend <laughs> Chesterfield cigarettes. Well, that was exactly right. Everybody smoked. I mean, I, I smoked for a little while, but it was more for show than anything else because um, everybody else did it. So there you go. Yeah, different times for sure. Totally. Well, tell us a little bit about your father. My dad, Martin, yeah, yeah he was um, he was the more of a creative person that I've given him credit for. Mom was the factual, um, realist dad, I think had a certain magic to him. Um, I think he was more of a dreamer, more of a, more of an artist, but the more I think about it, I think I got my creative side, my writing side more from my, my dad than anything else from his stories, from his experiences. Um, he used to love telling us about growing up, um, on the farm. And it was interesting too, because my mom basically lived close to the North Sea in the North. My father was, you know, basically close to the Adriatic there on the South, close to Italy. But when they shared stories, it was, they both were raised on a farm. It was like, you guys just live down the road from each other. It's a, the same thing. And my dad did point out, there's only so many ways you can milk a cow. Fair point, Pop. Yeah. yeah it was tough. It was tough. Uh, not a lot of money. Um, he did a lot of things um, on his own. He had a bunch of extra jobs. He used to do upholstery, so my mom would do all the fabrics. And he'd basically build the chairs or the Chesterfield and all that. I used to watch him. He'd take a handful of nails in his mouth with a magnetic end on a hammer, basically just quickly nail the fabric onto the frame. And I thought that was so cool until he found me running around with nails in my mouth one day. That wasn't so cool. <laughs> I remember and, uh, when he swore, it was always in Slovenian. Um, and you knew he was swearing just by the tone, didn't know what the words meant. But boy, that was something. That was something. He uh, staunch, staunch, a very, very, very strict Catholic. And then time started to ease that edge a little bit. Um, I remember my sister, uh, my younger sister, Anita, when she moved out, it was a big thing. Um, and then when I moved out, it was no big thing. And you're like, okay. And it was just over the, over the time. He was very protective of his daughters, perhaps. That was another big thing. I remember when I met Miriam, and it was the discussion that we were going to not get married. We're going to move in together. And I was petrified. I knew this wasn't going to go well. I told Miriam. Miriam just thought it was no big deal. But we went, and it was for a cup of coffee at around 3 o'clock. Always had a cup of coffee around 3. And we sat down, and... I remember that this was conversation and dad was real quiet. Dad was real quiet for a few minutes and he didn't say anything. And then all of a sudden he said, well, okay, if you're going to go, just let me know. You need to use the car to move whatever. Just, that's okay. And I said, you, so you're okay with this dad? And he goes, yeah. He said, well, there's a time in life when children have to listen to their parents. And then there's a time when parents have to listen to their children. And I thought, wow, there's a, like, there was a seismic shift just happened. 
You know, oh, I'll the, second that. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, well, it was. Did the Pope die? Like, what the heck? You know, there's a whole new thing going on here. It was incredible. Um, but he realized that the two of us were in love. And he, I think he realized we we're going to do it anyway. So let's just hitch onto this new bandwagon and see where this goes. He loved Miriam. Uh, my, my mom loved Miriam. Um, short little story. We, uh, we used to go for a cup of coffee and mom would come up with a big apple pie and everybody would share it. And Miriam didn't like cinnamon. And so she just mentioned it to me that, you know, in the apple pie, there was cinnamon. Cause I asked her, I said, you don't like the pie. You're not really eating it. And she says, well, no, it's good, but I, I don't like cinnamon. So I mentioned it to my mom that, you know, Miriam doesn't like cinnamon. And so the next time we went over for, for coffee, we, you know, out comes the big apple pie and a little pie for Miriam with no cinnamon. Aww. So there you go. So yeah, at that point I realized that yeah, Miriam was completely accepted. Yeah, they realized that Miriam probably at that point it was probably the the best thing for me because it got me out of the house finally. To this day, if I had not married Miriam, I probably would still be living in my parents' house because really? it just would be easier. Just find that groove and stick with it. Well, you mentioned that you get your creative side from your father. What sort of creative things was he into in his life? I think he was just a dreamer. Um, I think, he, quite honestly, he loved to read. I know that. And he used to love to build things, cabinets and refinish and all that kind of stuff. And But with them, they couldn't really pursue their artistic side. It was too busy. Money was tight. You got five kids. You got to do what you have to do. Sure. You know? So... Another story my dad actually I love is at one point I was probably in grade three or four. Um, a little girl down the lane, which is, now sounds silly, but anyway, she was kind of my girlfriend. And I remember one time she said to me, because she lived further down, so she'd come up to my house and the two of us would walk to school together. And she said to me, because I want you to come pick me up. I went, but I have to go down and then back? I mean, that's not making any sense. I don't get, you know, I didn't understand that. Didn't realize that she just wanted the gentleman to come calling. And so I remember walking to the gate. And again, dad was out in the garden. He saw me just kind of standing by the fence fidgeting. And he said, what's going on? And I explained it to him. He said, well, okay, well, this is what you do. Just stand there. And eventually she's going to come out of the house. And the minute you see her come down the driveway, you open the gate and start walking through. So she's just going to think that you're just a little bit late and you're actually coming down. But you don't actually have to come all the way down. I thought, man, Dad's got game. Well done. <laughs> and it worked. She came down the lane. I opened the gate, started walking down there. And as I'm walking down, she just kind of waved. No, I'm coming. I'm coming. Just realizing I was late. And it was that, Dad, wow, well done. Funny. So you said you have, uh, there's five kids in your family. Yep. So yep. you got four siblings. I do. I have a stepsister, uh, Laura, um, sister, another sister, Anita, and I've got two brothers, Ron and another brother, in, uh, Dave. Dave's over in Calgary. Ron's down in uh, California. Um, my sister, older sister, Laura, my stepsister, she's in uh, Tasmania. And then I've got my other sister. She's over in Port Moody. Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great place. Love it. Fantastic place. Let's hear about Tasmania. So you've been there. I have. They're um, just north of the capital, um, north of Hobart on the coast. There's a little place called Tribuna. I think I'm pronouncing that right. But they've got a great place. My brother-in-law, he was a forester and he ran one of the mills and he's retired now. So they've got a beautiful house overlooking the water, overlooking, a, um, it's an island called Moriah Island. It used to be a penal colony. And as I found out taking a tour through Australia at any point, um, I think everything at one point was a penal colony. So he's just like, this is where the prisoners were held and this is where the prisoners worked. And you realize that, yeah, well, that's kind of how Australia became Australia. But Moriah Island is no longer, it's now a national park and they've decommissioned the airfield. And when you go, it's incredible. They've got emu and there's like 30 or 40 emu running around the field in a herd. I don't know if it's called a herd, 
But when you're standing up on a hill and you're seeing all these animals running around, and years later when I watch Jurassic Park and you see the dinosaurs running in patterns, I'm thinking, yes, of course. Yeah, birds are dinosaurs. That has to be. But it was fun. Um, Australia was great. Um, there are things, and I, I did say to my, my brother-in-law, like, what do I have to watch out for? Because you always hear these horrible things. And he said, well, everything. I went, okay, narrow it down, shall we? Everything. So he said, the one you really have to be careful of, evidently, was a blue-tongued lizard or something. So I never saw one of those. But I did see, it was interesting, um, woke up one night, a moonlit night, and I looked down on the floor, and it was a little patch of light there. And there was like this little woodlice something running along, being chased by a scorpion, which was in turn being chased by a tarantula. So I thought, yeah, circle of life happening right there on the floor. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> it was bizarre. I haven't been there in years and years and years, so I'm well overdue for another visit. That whole side of the world I need to go to. You know, Vietnam and, and back to Australia. New Zealand was fantastic. New Zealand was interesting. North Island was really great. South Island was a lot like I was back in BC, only with better beer at the time so mm. it was kind of cool I was reading a travel <laughs> book one time and they said uh, one of the hot travel tips at the end of the book was if you really want to go to New Zealand just go to BC because everything's bigger and uh, it's, <laughs> true. it's easier to get to from North America <laughs> it's pretty, pretty much the same but true. well just to talk a little bit more about traveling because that's an interesting topic to me what was the most defining travel experience do you think that you've had in your life the most defining probably was the first trip I took to Australia I was on my own it was the first big trip by myself so I went to New Zealand and then I spent some time in Australia which was which was great with my sister. When you travel alone, you start knowing who you are and what you can accomplish. And it's kind of like, I guess, with my mom and dad, when all of a sudden they're on their own. Yeah, this is me. And these decisions I have to make and I have to live by. Of course, when you're traveling, you know, you're, you're pretty much, it's a lot different than when they were traveling. But yeah, you have to realize, okay, I got to catch this train. Where I was, it wasn't a different language. So again, it's easier. But if you make a mistake, if you don't get up in time, there's nobody else to blame but you. So it's these little discoveries that you make on your own. Well, how old are you when you did that trip? 22, 21, 21 or 22. How long did you go for it? Um, I, was, I was gone for about a month and a half. It was enough to know that this is fun. Actually, that's not true. The first trip I was ever kind of on my own was when I got out of high school. Drove across Canada with a friend of mine, made it to Niagara Falls, car died, and had to get home, which was interesting. What kind of car were you driving in? It was a oh, it was a station wagon. Um, it was a beat up thing. It was uh, it was a stick on the tree, which was interesting. Um, which I, I wasn't big on driving standards, but it was fun. That was a fun trip. Again, just two guys right out of high school, and it was it was great. I mean, I, I didn't even hang with the kid um, in high school that much. I knew him. But it was towards the end of the year, um, Randy, Randy Siemens. And he said to me, he said, i just talking about what we're going to do. And he said, well, I'm going to drive across. I want to see the Atlantic. I went, yeah, so do I. And off we went. And I was like, oh, okay, this is different. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. I had a uh, friend who joined the army soon after high school and he came back for a visit and he drove back from Ontario and he was going to be driving himself back to Ontario at the end of the trip. And I said, hey, do you want some company? And he was over the moon for having some company. Oh, huge. So we, we went together and what a great trip. Got to see the Calgary Stampede, mm. got to see the prairies, which I actually love. 
Do you? I uh, do love the prairies. Well, the prairies are interesting. Uh, yeah, but wow. I mean, straight. Every once in a while, there's a turn, which I don't know why. I guess just to wake you up at some point. I find it, it's just really comforting. The clouds are so beautiful. The landscape. I don't necessarily think I could live out there. No. And the cold would probably have something to do with that. But yeah. yeah. Huge. I mean, everyone says they miss the sun. Um, no one says they miss the cold. So I'm thinking, no. Right. <laughs> I like the ocean. Yeah, totally. Driving across the country. Great, great times. Bringing it back to the second traditional question we have mm-hmm. on this show, which we're going to talk about Pender a little bit more now, is uh, who has given you help along the way on Pender Island? Well, I'll be honest, help. Okay, the first person that I knew well, um, David, he was he was instrumental. He was my go-to with everything and anything. Um, but as time went on, I started making new friends and getting to know people. And I realized everybody does. I mean, this island is such a wonderful place that you can ask, I swear to God, any Penderite anything. And if they don't know, they'll know someone who will know and they'll guide you there. You may not be friends with them, just a passing acquaintance, but I swear to God, I'd go outside right now and I could ask somebody something and they would help you. Hitchhiking, same thing on this island. People do it. People stop. It's amazing. This whole idea about the car stops, I think is fantastic. I think there's going to be, there's, I feel a shift to the island. It's, it's interesting. We have a lot of younger families um, than the past that are moving, people who aren't retiring here, families who are now actually making a living on the island with the internet. So it, I think there's going to be a, I don't know, a massive shift, but the island's not changing, but the island's maturing, I guess. I don't really know how to put it, but there's a, there's a change coming. I can feel it. There's going to be a change. And I, I, like I said, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's certain questions coming up online, certain conversations I'm hearing at the Driftwood. Um, and maybe it's these are questions and, and, and concerns that, you know, from time immemorial and nothing's ever been addressed. But I think with newer, younger people, I think things might get addressed quicker. So just to come back to the question a little bit, though, so you're saying that you're sensing and you've felt and you've experienced help in many different ways from many different people oh, on the island? Totally. Yeah, no. I mean, if I have a problem with plumbing or something or, or I mean, there's always a way to guide. Um, somebody will say, well, I know this person and then this person will help or you'll, you, there's always a way to connect. We've had um, children who have been sick that the entire community rallies you know, up and helps. I know the situation right now with trying to find places to rent is a, is a concern. I don't have a solution there. I really don't know what to do, quite frankly. I mean, if you want people to actually work on the island, they have to live somewhere. Yeah, definitely. So, I'm, and I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I think with uh, Victoria becoming so expensive and Vancouver becoming frighteningly expensive, I think maybe a lot of families are starting to realize that, you know, we can take this business that we have and come to the Gulf Islands or wherever they're moving they have to move sure yeah and you'll find like in the u.s families move for work canada not so much there was a statistic i read somewhere um and i think it's gonna start happening as places become more and more expensive that they can't live they will start moving here and when they start doing that then the prices go up which means nobody's renting anymore which means you're not going to find the guy that's going to help you with the gardening or the home whatever needs things. So that's a, that's a bit of a concern. So I don't know how that's going to balance out. 
Yeah, I'm not sure either. And it's a very serious concern for a lot of people at the moment that there's not enough places to live. No. And that, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem as if there's a obvious solution on the horizon for that one. But it's interesting what you, you say, because the last interview I did as well, too, the person said that it was too hard of a question of who's giving you help on Bender because... Mm. There's been so much help. There has been. I mean, like I said, I mean, I've, I've received help from everybody. Um, I mean, Keith and Tilly, uh, Tilly, uh, my coworker, I mean, they've been fantastic and they've stepped up whenever I've needed help. Um, lovely couple. And Keith's, I mean, amazing with his, with the pantomime. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. Very creative soul. Um, it's just, it, it goes on and on and on. I literally, like I swear to God, you can go to the true value and find somebody and say, this is my situation. And I'll say, you know, I don't know, but I do know this. Like they won't just say, it's not my business. I don't care. They will help. They will find somebody who will help. The movie, It's a Wonderful Life. There's a scene in which as he's walking down the road, people say, hi, this happens here. Mm -hmm. It's rare you go for a walk anywhere where you don't know them and they'll say hello. And it's great. You know, what you're saying about asking for help and then being able to receive it in this community so easily is such a wonderful thing to hear. And I think that I hope that it's something that will be able to resonate with people because I hadn't really given much thought to that. Before we did the interview, we talked mm. about this briefly and you said this and it's been in the back of my mind about if you ask for help, it'll be there. And if somebody mm -hmm. doesn't know the answer, they'll know somebody who does. And I think that for anybody listening on the island who maybe feels as if that they don't know how to ask for help or they're afraid they might not receive help if they do ask, I think that's a really optimistic and powerful perspective that you have. Mm -hmm. I, well, I've experienced it and I've given it. I mean, you know, I've helped where I can. Um, you know, I'm not talented when it comes to home renovations or anything like that. But I mean, Again, hitchhiking, and again, it's a perfect example. I mean, you just, you stop for people who need help. You know, they want to ride someplace. I mean, I've driven past my house. And that's the other thing is, uh, that what kills me is I live on South Pender. Oh, it's too far. No, it's not. It's not too far. It's I, not I too, agree. It's not too far, people. Come on. North Pender, South Pender. I mean, uh, my ex used to run Pender. Trust me. We can get anywhere you want within 20 minutes. It's not a problem. Sorry, she used to run Pender? Uh, she's a marathoner. Oh, okay. Yeah, people would remember her. She would, uh, she'd be always, when she, when she was training, she had it. I used to drop her off in Trick O'Malley and she'd run to Pen, tell Pender home. Wow. Yeah. So I used to be one of those people who thought it was too far as well, too. It's but a lovely drive. It's a beautiful drive. I love the drive to very, South Pender. Very peaceful. And that's the other thing, the wave, the Pender wave. I mean, who waves on the mainland? You don't. You know, people give the little finger. Hello. Two fingers. Three fingers, not one finger. That's rude. <laughs> but you know, you just you know, it's just this way of recognizing that I know you. You're in the you're in the white Mazda. I know who you are. Hello. It's great. Yeah, and you know, it's great to give observation to these simple things that are part of our daily existence on the island mm -hmm. as well, too. And you know, what I'm sensing from you is a sense of gratitude for these things. Totally. Yeah. No, it's it, it empowers you basically. You know, you're not alone. You can be as alone as you want to be. But if you if you want to connect, then that's available too. No one's forcing you to be part of anything. But if you want to be, there's a there's a ton of organizations and groups and people that would be more than happy to welcome you on board. You are as alone as you want to be. You know, no one's forcing you to be alone. On the mainland, it's different. In the city, it's different. Um, you do tend to isolate yourself because there's just it's just so much going on. You, you rarely see the same face twice. Um, and I think people are a little bit more suspicious too. I mean, 
my, my sister drives her nuts that I leave my door unlocked. Um, I remember talking, it was funny, I remember talking to one lady in, um, on Saturna about insuring her house. And uh, one of the questions came up about security. And she says, well, we, we, don't, we don't lock our doors. We don't even have, the, the door we built doesn't even have a lock. And trying to explain that to an insurance broker over on the mainland, um, yeah, I, I can't. Like, what do you mean? There's no, I mean, the door's never locked. I went, no. Have you been to Saturna? I mean, there's no need. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So would you say that part of your decision for moving to Pender Island was trying to recreate some circumstances that you had in your youth? Um, I think the initial reason was it was peaceful. Beautiful, peaceful place. We had a, we had an anchor through my friends, Dave and Diane, which is great. And it was a place where we could both uh, slow the pace down that uh, we could retire here eventually. I mean, I'm far from retiring, but that was kind of the idea. Um, redo the house and uh, and that kind of a thing. And, and it still is. I mean, just, you know, there's been certain circumstances and changes throughout. And there is. I mean, it always is in life. Life isn't a straight, straight line. It's a, the road you're on is often twists and there's ups and downs. And you're walk, kind of like walking through the mountains more than anything else. Um, and you never really know what's around the corner. You try to anticipate, but sometimes you get surprised. But for the most part, yeah, we moved here basically, I think it was just because it was a beautiful, peaceful place that the people seemed friendly. For sure. I got an interesting question asked of me the other day, and mm. I'm going to ask this of you. Mm -hmm. And uh, where are you putting your love these days? Putting my love? Okay. Um, well, it would be with my new partner and the changes that, that, that I see coming with the house. Um, the changes in my life. So yeah, that's definitely where the, the love is being poured into and being received, which is lovely. Uh, changes with your house? Uh, well, yeah, we're renovating. I mean, I, I've wanted to, but she's got the vision more so than I do. I, I'm more of a, oh, okay, let's do that. Until I hit a certain thing, it's like, no, I like that where that is. <laughs> so it's kind of like that kind of a thing, but for the most part. So and that is, I mean, it, uh, she's turning it into a, a home that I, uh, we never really got around to. With Miriam... She would spend the weekends here and then she'd go away. And I remember that I didn't want to cause any heavy discussions or concerns or anything. I wanted the weekends for her to be perfect. And so nothing ever got discussed, which I think was one of the reasons that uh, we fell apart because we didn't talk. And talk is huge. Conversation is huge. You need to talk. You need to be able to say when things are bothering you, when things are not, you know, things are wonderful. You need to be able to do these things. That if you're always focused on only one aspect um, of, of a life that you want it to be a perfect place, and it isn't, nothing ever is, then you're ignoring the obstacles that come up. And when the obstacles do come up, as they do, you're not prepared to deal with them. So I think that's what happened between Miriam and I. So anyway, this new world that I'm now in, the person that I'm with is, yeah, no, it's like, let's get this done. And she's a force. She's amazing. And I'm just like, all right, what can I do? Point me in that direction. Yeah. And just to touch back in with just something you said about uh, the importance of communication through your life, it sounds like communication is a pretty important thing. It, well, it has to be. You need to be. Humans are, are, we need society. We need to talk. I don't think like you hear about people going away on these long periods of isolation. I don't think that's, I don't think that's healthy. I think we need to surround ourselves within reason with people. Um, and we need to be able to communicate because that's the only way we can grow as a society, as a people, as an Island. We don't always have to agree, but we have to have the ability to talk. Yeah. It's, <laughs> 
It's interesting because with the idea of doing this podcast, I ran into somebody then I explained the idea for doing the podcast and he said, wow, you've got to check out this TED talk mm. where an individual explains the importance of a one-on-one conversation and how the person who's being interviewed is being asked questions and being heard and being listened to and then just the powerful effect that has mm-hmm. for that individual. And it got me even more inspired mm-hmm. to do this because I think that yeah, being able to give people an opportunity to uh, express themselves and tell their stories and have an active listener partaking in it, I think is a pretty powerful thing. It connects us. Yeah, it connects us as a people. We all have stories. We all want to share those stories. And then you start finding out that, hey, my story is kind of like your story. Let's compare notes. You're building the bridges that we require in order to move forward, I think. It's not always easy. Um, we're not I think when we're really little, we know how to talk, we know how to tell stories, we know how to share stories, but we lose that ability as as uh, the world kicks in, how the internet kicks in. It's easier to become isolationist, basically just focused on my thing, my phone. Um, I'm going to like things. Well, no, I don't really like them, but I'm going to because I feel obligated to. Um, and it's not it's not a real connection. You don't always have to physically be with the person, but you need to be able to talk to the person, you know, through the phone or or share ideas, dreams, wishes, failures, sadness. Definitely. Well, what's a bridge you'd like to put out there for people? Because that's something I hope to accomplish as well, too, for people to say, oh, I didn't know that person was into that. Mm. That's really interesting. What's a potential bridge to throw out there to people that uh, this is something that Victor's interested in and uh, you may not know? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Kind of almost everything and anything, really. It's, it, that's a tough one. I mean, I love reading. I love books. People know that already. Well, what kind of books do you love reading? Again, I'll read. If it's interest, I'll read it. Right now I'm reading um, Gaslight Takes Place in the 1800s in London. Great. The next book's basically called Gut. It's all about your stomach. Let's read about that. So it's kind of whatever catches my eye. I'll read anything. I'll, I'll try and read everything and anything. Once in a while you get, to, you get a book and you're like, oh, okay, this isn't going for me. And I have learned. I did the calculation a while ago. If I average two books a day and I die at the age of 90, how many books have I read for the rest of my life? It's not enough. Wait, two books a day for the no, rest no, of your sorry. life? Two books a month. Two, two books, books a month. Okay. Two books a month. Right. It is not enough. It's not enough. And so you're like, oh my God, I have to be much more critical as to what I'm reading and what I don't want to read. And so if if the idea doesn't grab me, great. I'm not going to read it. And if I can't get past the first paragraph, no. I'm sorry. I'm not going to spend three chapters in no don't have time so one paragraph and then yeah boom it's out if you can't grab me within that first paragraph often that first line that first sentence no so i know it's kind of weird you know that's that's what i have to do now i don't think it's weird when i'm in a bookstore i read the first page yeah and then if the first page grabs me then i feel as if it's exactly yeah but i i've been criticized by people in the past for not finishing books being halfway through and i'm like i my life is too important to do something i don't enjoy time is so valuable yeah you can't just waste time time's critical i mean people say well what about meditating you're not doing anything well no you are you're clearing your brain, you're, you're clearing your mind, you're clearing your soul. So that's 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 different. I'm at a point now in my life, this, this is important, we've got to do this. Because if I don't do it now, it's not going to happen. 
Mm -hmm. I heard this said recently about uh, some advice from something I was listening to online, a podcast, and the person suggested that there is no wasting of time, that actually to create the space where you are doing nothing gives you an opportunity to actually find what it is that you really want to do. And instead of cluttering our time with activities that are relatively meaningless or just distracting us that to actually cultivate regular time in your life to quote unquote do nothing Mm -hmm. in order to actually find what it is that you want to be doing with that time it's interesting because you do tend to clutter yeah it's easy to get cluttered all right well just to get back to the books real quick because that is something that you're obviously passionate about. Very much so. What's, what's the last book you read that really, really moved you? Oh, All the Light You Cannot See. That was a brilliant book. That was a great book. Bitter in the Mouth. That was fantastic. I love that book. I love that writer. She, um, the, basically the premise is um, there's a young girl and um, she tastes words. So when she says the word mother, she tastes milk. And so that's the premise, and she goes through life, and it's just an amazing thing. I think she falls in love with a boy because his name makes her taste oranges. I think I love that. I mean, that's why she falls in love with him. It's because not necessarily who he is or what, but that's that's the first connection, right? So I thought it was a brilliant book, absolutely brilliant. I'm just she's written two books, um, the Book of Salt and this other one, and I'm like, will you please write me another one, please, because it's so unique and very different. And I think that that's one thing I do look for books. I want to be taken someplace that I'm. Um, maybe I'm uncomfortable in, or I don't understand, or I'm I'm just unfamiliar with. You know, I mean, we all have our go-tos that you know. I just want to be entertained for a little bit, and that's great. But the book that really grabs me is something that's going to take me someplace that I haven't been before. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're nearing the end of our time here, and mm. I heard you mention the word happy, and mm. maybe we'll end off on that note because, uh, yeah, what makes you happy? Well, it makes me happy. Petting a pup, dogs make me happy. Um, the new, my, my, my new girl makes me happy. Waking up in the morning and, and knowing that the day is going to be a great day makes me happy. Going to bed knowing that you've had a great day makes me happy. Having a cup of coffee, sitting outside and watching the sun just go from one side of the valley to the other makes me happy. Um, finding out my family is good and happy. That makes me definitely happy. Um, the recent announcement that my nephew and his and his recent wife are expecting makes me ecstatic. It's going to be so exciting. So that makes me happy. There are a lot of things that make you happy. I think sometimes we just have to pay attention to what makes us happy and just kind of linger on it a little bit. You know, let, let, let that taste sink in a little bit. You know, because I think we linger too much on what makes us unhappy and sad. You know, all the happy moments just kind of, they're all there and they're so fast, just Grab onto them, hang on to them just a little bit longer. Be happier people. How's that for an answer? That's great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, Victor. This was great. Um, it was definitely an eye opener, and I'm going to be sitting for the rest of the day going, "Oh, it was interesting." <laughs> so it was, it was, it was, it was a positive. This is actually, this is a happy. There you go. Fantastic. All right. Well, to all our listeners, thanks for tuning in and listening again, and we'll be back next week with another episode. All right, well, there you have it. And in honor of that interview... Oh, wait. What's that noise? Am I driving across the bridge towards the South Island? 
Yes, I am. In honor of that interview, I'm going to be driving to South Island. So I just crossed a single lane bridge that connects North Pender Island with South Pender Island, and I'm driving along Canal Road towards. Well, we'll see where we wind up here today. Continuing along Canal, and there's little peaks of Saturna Island through the trees on my left-hand side here, just passing by a surfboard in front of somebody's property, giving the address out there. It's a gorgeous, windy road. Hardly any traffic out today, probably because traffic does not exist on Pender Island. Just passing by a trailhead for the William Walker Trail on my right-hand side. Just taking a sharp right turn here, and I'm heading towards the Spalding Valley. Beautiful east to west valley that always gets sunshine. Gorgeous place. The far end of Spalding Road, I just hung a left. I'm driving along a road without any yellow line down the middle and a canopy of trees and there's a sign up ahead and says Enchanted Forest Park. Do we have an enchanted forest on this island? It seems like we do. I'm going to go check it out. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time.